Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. For those of you who weren't here for Phoebe's introduction to Isaiah, it was actually about four weeks ago, I think, so it's been a little while. Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century BC long time ago. Now, God sent his prophets on daunting and often really dangerous missions. I don't think I would have wanted to be one. Um, They were often dispatched, dispatched at what seemed like the 11th hour last minute to try and stop the people's rush towards destruction, to warn them of judgment, to call them back to God, and to remind them of God's love for them. Now, a lot of Isaiah is written in poetry, even in songs. Um, It was written in Hebrew first, obviously translated into English now. So it's no surprise that sometimes Isaiah, I've found, is a little difficult to grasp the meaning of. Um, But don't give up. That's what I've found over the past few weeks reading these chapters we're going to study today. Don't be afraid to wrestle with Scripture, to dig deep into it, and to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what the words mean. I think it's important to preface before we begin that the first parts of Isaiah, particularly the chapters we're looking at today, they do talk a lot about judgment and punishment, but they can't be separated from that overall theme of Isaiah, which is salvation and hope. They go hand in hand. So today we're going to kick off in Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to go through to chapter 6 in just 15 minutes. So as we delve into chapter 2. Judah, who are God's people, they're meant to be this bright, shining light, but they're living in darkness. They've become corrupted by sin. Their hearts have turned away from God. Immorality, injustice, and corruption are rife throughout the community. Isaiah outlines the people's sins in chapter 2, verses 6 to 22. He says, instead of consulting the Lord on matters, they're going to diviners. They are superstitious. They're heaping up financial treasures, chariots, horses, while other people are in poverty because they're finding their protection, their security in wealth rather than God. And it says that they're worshipping idols that have been made by their own hands. We read in 2 Kings chapter 15 that Jotham, one of the kings that was reigning during Isaiah's time, it says in one translation, he walked steadfastly with the Lord, or that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the high high places were not removed. So here we have a nation, God's people, who are meant to follow God alone. And they're indulging in idol worship. And literally, if you were in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem at that time, the high places, the hillsides around, were dotted with shrines of worship to other gods. Chapter 2 goes on to tell us that God's people have become arrogant and proud. And Isaiah, like Jesus, he sees human pride as the root of so much wrong in our lives. Isaiah finishes chapter 2 by telling us in verse 22, Stop trusting in man who has but breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? And so I ask of myself and of you this morning, where are we placing our trust? Because only the Lord is worthy of our undivided confidence and our security needs to come from Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers, a famous um, writer, he puts it like this. It must be God first, God second, and God third, until all of life is faced steadfastly with God. 
Chapter 3 details the judgment of Jerusalem and Judah. Bit of a history lesson, I can't help myself, I am a primary school teacher, so bear with me. So, on the screen coming up on the map, um, you can see that Israel was originally one guy. He had 12 sons, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Over time, it divided into a northern kingdom of 10 tribes, Israel, and a southern kingdom there in the red, Judah, two tribes, um, Judah and Benjamin became that southern kingdom. By 722 BC, over on the uh, the right-hand side, history tells us that um, the the northern kingdom of Israel had become really evil, incredibly evil practices. You can read that throughout the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles. Um, And basically, in the the purple and the green there, you can see the Assyrian Empire um, comes in and um, the northern kingdom completely falls. So when Isaiah comes onto this stage in history... All that's left is the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's saying to them, hey, you're about to be taken over as well. In fact, it's going to be Babylon, though, who wasn't even a major player in the powers at the time. And he says that you're going to be carried off into captivity. We pick up this prophecy in Isaiah 3, verses 8 to 9. It says, Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling. Their words and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, they have brought disaster upon themselves. God's people had turned away from him. And because of their refusal to repent, to turn back to God, he'd sent Isaiah as a messenger, desperately warning them, repent, turn back to God because disaster's coming. Now this fall of Judah into captivity that was prophesied, actually does happen in history about 150 years after Isaiah penned those words. Babylon comes in and um, Judah falls in about 586 BC. I think it's really important to note though that Isaiah wasn't prophesying this message like a doom and gloom, smirk on his face, ha ha ha, you're getting what's coming to you. Isaiah had actually a really deep love for the people. He devoted 40 years of his life to them in what wouldn't have been an easy message to bring, constantly encouraging them to repent and to turn back to God. Because Isaiah, just like God, he didn't want his people to perish, but to be restored. And because of the sin and the wicked practices, God was going to allow his people Judah to be taken captive. But Isaiah, even in the midst of that, encouraged them. You see in Isaiah 3 verse 10, that he encouraged them, God still has a rescue plan. He says to them, tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. And that brings us to chapter 4, that God had a rescue plan, he still has a rescue plan, a plan for salvation. In fact, Isaiah uses the word salvation 26 times, which is more than all the other Old Testament prophets combined. So you can see it was like a major theme of the entire book. Um, And basically what they called a remnant, about one-tenth of Judah, were going to return from captivity, this was the prophecy, in Babylon 70 years after the fall. And they would rebuild Jerusalem, which actually happened. Isaiah 4 verse 2 tells us, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Now remember at the start we said a lot of Isaiah is written in poetry. So this is poetic language. It's a metaphor used across that chapter 4 to prophesy that God has a rescue plan for his people and that salvation will come, what he's calling through the branch of Judah. In other words, through the, the lineage, the tribe of Judah, Centuries later after this is written, our saviour Jesus Christ is one day born. How awesome is that? 
So Isaiah um, jumps back in in chapter 5, right back to the sin of the people again. And this chapter I found pretty heavy going. It's basically a warning from Isaiah to his people yet again. Babylon is coming. Repent. Turn back to God. Now, I unashamedly love gardening. Uh, anyone else who loves gardening? Oh, a couple of you. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, so when I first got into gardening in my 20s, I saw this gorgeous little dainty white flower. I thought it was beautiful. I had to have it. I actually dug it up from someone's yard. I can't even remember. I don't think I asked permission. Um, I took it home to where I was living on my parents' farm. I planted it in pots, watched it prosper and multiply. Fast forward a few years, turns out it's a noxious weed. Um, and you don't need to be a farmer's daughter to know that bringing noxious weeds home to a farm is not a good thing to do. It spread throughout the back garden. It spread throughout the back lawn. Dad didn't know why um, onion weed was suddenly popping up everywhere, and I wasn't going to tell him it was me. Um, also, turns out Roundup doesn't kill it. In fact, the, well, you can, but it kills everything else. The official advice when I looked it up was to hand paint every stem with a paintbrush. I was like, I'm not doing that. The other advice is to dig it up whole by the bulb, but then the bulbs crumble in. This is nasty. They crumble into like dozens of new little tiny ones that grow all over again. So to this day, 10 years later, I'm still digging up onion weed. And I don't even live on the farm anymore. It came with me in pots somehow to the house I bought, and it's all through my garden. Needless to say, these little onion weeds did not produce the harvest they hoped for or expected. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah gives us a parable about God as a gardener. However, unlike me in this story, God actually does know what he's doing. He plants in this story a beautiful vineyard. He chooses the best location. He waters it. He cultivates the plants. He cares for it. He gives it the best conditions possible to thrive. But he doesn't get the harvest he expected. Isaiah goes on to say that God's people, Judah, are like that vineyard. And instead of producing the harvest God expected of obedience and thanksgiving, love, worship and service, um, Judah has returned a harvest of disobedience, rebellion and idolatry. And I think it's worth pondering for ourselves Thousands of years after those words have been penned, what kind of harvest is my own life producing? What kind of garden am I? Am, am I obedient to God? Am I thankful? Do I love, worship and serve God with my whole heart? Or are there some weeds growing in that garden of my heart that I need to get rid of? It's worth pondering. Chapter 6 is one of my favourite chapters of Isaiah, and many people are familiar with this chapter. Here, Isaiah really changes gear very abruptly and goes back to tell us of how he was called by God. We're going to pick it up from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. You know, the more Isaiah saw of God's holiness in that vision, the more clearly he saw himself. In verse 5, Isaiah says in the NIV translation, I am ruined. In the King James Version, it says, I am undone. But those words translate to mean, I am destroyed, a violent end. In other words, when Isaiah saw God in all his glory and holiness, which is like unfathomable for us, he felt like he was as good as dead. And the only thing he could do was to confess his sins before a holy God. And this initial vision of God in all his glory and holiness, it coloured Isaiah's whole mission for the rest of his life. He had personally seen God as the Holy One of Israel, a name that he actually goes on throughout the book of Isaiah to call God 25 times. Whereas if you look at the rest of the Old Testament combined, God's only called the Holy One of Israel six other times. So he's seen God as the Holy One of Israel and he never forgot it. It changed him from the inside out. And it also seen human sin, his own personal sin, for the appalling thing that it is. And he never forgot that. And he'd been, ta- he'd been cleansed and forgiven and taken into God's service. Isaiah experienced this deep conviction of his own sin in that moment, but also of his need for God. And this led to confession and repentance cleansing and forgiveness, followed by being called into God's service. And when you and I truly meet God face to face, the outcome is a changed heart and a changed life. And I know many of you have experienced that personally. Because once you receive grace, it recolors your whole life. So when God calls you, when God calls me, what will our response be? I'm too busy, got more important things to do. I'm not good enough, I don't have time, I don't have the right skills, I never say the right words. Or will your response simply be, like Isaiah, here I am, send me. Despite Isaiah prophesying the destruction and the fall of Judah, which is a pretty full-on message, God's heart throughout that whole message was actually for his people to repent and to turn back to him to follow him with their whole hearts. And he wanted the people to know that he had a plan for salvation already at work. And the same is true for us today. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in Revelation 3 verse 20, Jesus himself says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. God desires a close personal relationship with you. So will you open the door to your heart and meet him there? Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. 
there is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.